This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Real quick, back to pass, throws over the middle. That's caught by Johans. 45, has the 40. 35, streaking down the middle of the field. Johans Tyler will outrun the defense and score his second collegiate touchdown. 63 yards to Johans Tyler. And with it. It's the single greatest yardage output in a game in Ball State history. Hey, that's me. College football season is officially underway. The Ball State football Cardinals kicked off last night. A 42-6 win over Central Connecticut State. Nearly had the shutout. 12 seconds left. Uh, They gave up a touchdown. Uh, But they did rack up the most yards in a single game in Ball State football history. So a lot of fun to broadcast last night and a lot of fun to get back behind the microphone as we officially uh, kick off college football season. Next week, it gets a little more difficult. Notre Dame Stadium, which will be very cool. It'll be the Irish and Ball State Cardinals uh, 3.30 next week, 2.30 across the Ball State radio network. See how that one goes. A little bit of a different experience. It'll be my first football game ever called at Notre Dame Stadium. Be my third ever game. I broadcast two women's lacrosse games, including the first ever women's lacrosse game ever played at Notre Dame Stadium. It was the Big East Championships back when I was a junior in college, so it would have been the spring of 2008. Broadcast a couple women's lacrosse games at Notre Dame Stadium with Tim Swartz. And uh, this will be uh, this will be a little bit of a different experience, but very much looking forward to it. So college football is officially underway. It's also why this podcast is dropping a little bit late this morning. I always record these intros Thursday night. Podcast comes out Friday. For whatever reason, I never do it in advance unless I'm on vacation. I always record them Thursday night. And even with a game last night, I still decided I was going to record it Thursday night. I would come home. I'd talk about the broadcast, whatever. Um, That was all a good idea. It didn't work because I got home and fell asleep on the couch and woke up at 4 a.m., at which point I was not going to start the podcast. So uh, if you're on the East Coast, you're getting this a couple hours late today. If you're on the West Coast, you probably didn't notice because you just woke up. Uh, But all's well, that ends well. Anyway, you didn't come here to hear me ramble. You came here to hear this guy. Swinging a high deep drive on the right field. That one's called to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Dave O'Brien is our guest on episode number 117 of Play by Play Cast. He's the television voice on Nesson of the Boston Red Sox, and we'll dive into it. But some house cleaning right off the top. This is, of course, Play by Play Cast. The podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, process, stories, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. You can find the pod on social media at PXPCast. You can hit me up at Joel Godet, or you can email me, J-G-O-D-E-T-T, at B-S-U dot E-D-U. Really wide-ranging conversation with Dave today. Uh, And it's not a long one. It's only about 35 minutes, uh, but we cover a ton of ground, starting with his time at WAER as a Syracuse student, 
If you don't want to hear the Syracuse talk, skip like the first three minutes. Uh, then we'll dive into making it to the major leagues as a very young broadcaster, not directly out of college, but uh, but pretty dang close. Uh, and then what it was like working with an expansion franchise when he went to uh, now Miami, then the Florida Marlins. Talk about the ins and outs of good baseball play-by-play, where analytics sit on a baseball broadcast. Uh, preparation differences, especially in terms of kind of elements, pre-produced elements or lines of discussion, topics of discussion, how you approach things differently for a national broadcast versus a local broadcast in baseball. Uh, We'll talk about voicing because Dave has amazing pipes. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit about that and getting rid of a New England accent too, which we did with Tim Haggerty a couple of weeks ago. Um, So good to get a a new and another perspective on on that uh, journey as well. And we'll talk about handling big moments because Dave has done a ton of them be it in his national television career or his uh, Red Sox career. I mean, he's broadcast monumental home runs for Barry Bonds, record breakers for Barry Bonds. Uh, He's broadcast immensely historic moments in Red Sox history. Uh, So how he tackles those big moments, it's always one of my favorite topics of conversation on the podcast, so we'll get Dave O'Brien's thoughts on that as well. We start, though, with his time at a school in central New York and what it was like in uh, one of the golden eras of WAER in Syracuse. Dave O'Brien is our guest here on episode number 117 of Play by Playcast. It's always ultra competitive, that environment. And that's part of what makes Syracuse Syracuse and made WAER really a a place where you wanted to be on the air as quickly as you could. and, And competition was a big part of that. I mean, you know, the guys that were around me were uh, over periods of time, right in front of me, Sean McDonough, and right with me, Mike Tirico and uh, Bill Roth, who was longtime voice at Virginia Tech, and, and a number of other guys. And I think we all had the same idea coming in, that we wanted to be on the air and we wanted to be that guy that, that others would look at and go, yeah, he's, he's your next rising star. I think we all had that in the back of our heads. But more than that, it was just getting the opportunity to do play-by-play because that's what we all wanted to do. You know, we all wanted to call games. Um, that's never gone away. I think we were, we're all, a lot of the people there were live event guys, men and women, uh, who wanted to be on the air calling games, you know, in major college football, NFL, major college basketball, major league baseball. And that yearning meant that, you know, that's why you came to Syracuse and why you were on AER at that time. I remember, um, you know, I would do anything, I, and I think we all did. I volunteered to do 6 a.m. sports, yep. you know, and because uh, it, it made you better, and it got you on the air, which was, in the end, what you wanted more than anything was to be on the air in front of a microphone. Does it make you better just being in that environment, too, where everyone else is better, so you have to be better? And, and, and in a lot of ways, does that translate to the real world? I think it does. I, I, I think it really does. I mean, you know, Mike Tarico tells the story, and I don't really remember it this way, but he does, <laughs> that, you know, when I came on the air, because I had been employed at about five or six different radio stations before I ever uh, showed up on AER. So I was fairly polished for a young guy of that age. Um, and Mike Tarico tells the story that the first time they heard me on the air, they were like, oh, my God, this guy sounds like he's 40 years old. We're never going to get on the air. And I didn't quite remember it that way, especially with with uh, Michael's incredible talent. But but I, I do remember feeling like I got something to prove. 
you know, and I think we all did. I think every one of us, every last one of us felt like this is where we prove our chops. This is where we we begin that that process of reaching the national level as quickly as we can. Uh, I don't think anybody was thinking we're, we're going to be, you know, in a, in a small market somewhere in in southwestern Texas for the rest of our lives. You know, I know I thought uh, ESPN or CBS or NBC I know Mike did. I know Sean did. I know a lot of a lot of us did, um, and and that was the starting point. But it was a great starting point because it made you tougher. It made you stronger as a talent. It happened pretty quickly though for you thereafter that, and I never realized that because I just never did the math in my head. Um, but I didn't realize that like four or five years after you were done in college, you were you were doing major league baseball. Um, what's it like? I mean, obviously you get. You get hired for a reason, but what is it like being thrust into that environment, that situation, uh, being so young? And and how do you how did that make you better? How did kind of holding your feet to the fire in that regard uh, kind of bring you up to speed in a certain way? Yeah, it's a great question because you have to. If you want to survive, you better you better learn. You better make your mistakes not not make too many of them, <laughs> but learn from them. And I worked with the great Pete Van Weren, who was a longtime Atlanta Braves announcer. I also worked alongside Skip Carey and Don Sutton. That was the the, the bubble that I worked in broadcast wise. I remember Pete said to me, within my first year, he said, you know, the the great thing about you is you never have to be told twice, you know. And I took that as a compliment, and really took that as a compliment to my training at Syracuse. And, and what I went through at WAER and as a student in the new house environment, because I, I really felt like I had to be better, you know, because everybody from Syracuse, yeah, I hate to say this, you know, for those who, who hate that, that tradition, <laughs> but, you know, we are and we work at it and we go there for a reason. We graduate from Syracuse for a reason. But I took that as a great compliment from Pete. And uh, and I think it, it made me better because I had to be better. I was a young kid. I was 26. When I got the Braves job, I was calling a World Series at 27 uh, and working with legendary announcers around me. Um, and they made me better. I mean, you know, Don Sutton really taught me how to watch baseball much differently, for example, than than I would as just a fan or even as a young announcer. He taught me to look for things and how a game turns. Simple things like, you know, late in the game, runner at third, fly ball down the right field line, it's foul. Does the right fielder make that catch or does he let it fall in? Because if he makes the catch, that runner's going to tag and score. You know, stuff like that, how to watch a game a little bit differently. Uh, Skip Carey taught me how to have fun with a broadcast. Enjoy yourself. It's not life and death. Every time he finished a game, his scorecard went right in the circular file, went right in the trash. He never looked at it again. Hmm. He really knew how to enjoy himself. Pete Van Weren taught me how to prepare and, and really prepare for a major league broadcast to get ready for those three hours. And so I had a great, a, a great classroom even after Syracuse. Uh, vague question, but uh, what did you learn about how to have fun from Skip? Uh, and, and how does that uh, still inform you today? Some of that I can talk about, some of it I can't. Because... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Skip, uh, Skip knew how to cut loose, and we'll put it that way. Uh, that might be an answer like in have, its own right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's an answer. To, and you know, and but it, but he was a great, great in many ways. He was a great, rather mercurial teacher, but he was a he was a great teacher. But I think the biggest thing was, I think at, at one point, my first year was 1990 with the Braves, and they were god awful. And 
Braves had lost like eight or nine in a row. And he looked at me after a broadcast after we signed off one day and he was like, uh, kid, what, what's, what's bothering you? What's, what's up? And I said, I said, geez, you know, it's terrible. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, the team keeps losing. And he, he looked at me and he said, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. Just enjoy yourself. Enjoy what you, and, and I, I took that to heart forever after that. It was, it was like someone had taken a weight off my shoulders because broadcasting the game is not playing the game. It's not fielding the team. It's not paying the payroll. It's not, it's not all of those things that the franchise is wrapped up in the team. We're, we're the voices that bring that, that hopefully entertainment to the fan base, but we're not responsible for it. And I guess I was wearing it and thinking that I was, and, and he let me know that that was pretty stupid. One of the ways that you broadcast, for lack of a better word, bad baseball, too, in some respects, when the team's not going well, and obviously you went to, to Florida in 1993, and it, it takes a while for an expansion team to kind of gain a foothold. So when you're in a situation where there isn't a ton of winning, um, but you're still on the air for three to four hours every night for 162 nights a year, uh, how do you keep it interesting? Well, yeah. You look for the stories. You look for the great stories, uh, human interest stories on every ball club, and there are multitudes of those. I mean, there are there are hundreds over the course of a season, and players are constantly coming up from the minor leagues, or you're making trades, personnel is shifting, players' responsibilities are shifting on the same team. Um, so there's there should always be something very interesting to follow. Even when a team is horrible, um, you look at the I, micro. I remember, not, not. It's it's the micro story within the story. Like you might be losing this sixteen nothing, but why is this at bat important to this guy? Type of thing. No question, because that that's very true. And you've got you've got young kids who are trying to you know get get their foothold, gain their foothold in Major League Baseball. At the same time, you have veterans who are at the downside of their career, and they're just hanging on. So. Those at bats mean a lot equally in September to both of those those players, even though the, the record is terrible. And you know, it's it's different with an expansion club. You know, you, you bring up the Marlins when I went there in '93. When you sign to do an expansion club, you know they're going to lose. You know they're going to get their head beaten in for the next six months. So that's a given, and and that's a weight off everyone's shoulders too, because you know they're not going to be very good. And if they do win three or four, it's like winning the seventh game of the World Series every time. And that's really what that was like. That was a marvelous experience. I, I would say for every announcer, if you get an opportunity to be on the ground floor with an expansion team, especially earlier in, in your career, take that opportunity because everything is a first. The fan base is terrific. They're, they're locked in on and they fall in love with the players. They fall in love with the organization. Um, and, and that's what happened with the Marlins back then. It's not true anymore, but it was certainly true then when, when, when we first started out. And I get very lucky in Atlanta because my first year in 1990, the Braves were really bad. The next year, they went to the seventh game of the World Series. Yeah. So, you know, overnight, I had an opportunity to see the, the incredible difference between being awful and, and almost being a champion, which was really marvelous. Uh, I asked you about learning from Skip in terms of uh, how, to, how to have fun. You mentioned learning from Pete Van Weeren in terms of preparation. Uh, as a young broadcaster, what was imparted to you from Pete uh, in your time in Atlanta? Accuracy. You know, accuracy above all. Um, tell the truth. Uh, don't sugarcoat. All of those things I got from Pete. Um, and, and he taught me that those hours before the game are just as important in many respects as the broadcast itself. The 
the time you spend in the clubhouse, the time you spend behind the batting cage, talking with your shortstop about the double play that didn't get turned the night before and why that happened. That gives you material for that night. That gives you storylines for that evening and for many evenings to come. And, and Pete was great about, you know, what you put on your, your scorecard or in your scoring book that you want to talk about that evening. And, you know, I remember him talking about, well, you know, put it, put it there. So it's a quick, easy reference for you. So that when you talk about, let's say Ron Gantz, three home runs in the last three games, you're not just tossing out, you know, an arbitrary number. You've spoken to the player as well. So does he feel locked in as locked in as three home runs and three nights might suggest? Well, you might talk to him behind the batting cage at five o'clock and he might go, I'm really not swinging the bat very well. You know, that, that first one was off the end of the bat. I got lucky on that changeup. I guessed wrong on the sinker. I happen to, just, you know, stuff like that. And that can, that can give you an insight into a player, his work habits, his, his mindset that you wouldn't get if you hadn't done the work. How do you organize that, too, uh, in terms of what you put in front of you, what you entrust to your memory, uh, you know, that conversation you have at the batting cage uh, to make sure that you recount it accurately for yourself when you're doing it on the air, uh, but at the same time, you've got a scorecard in front of you that is not uh, overrun with things that you can cover over three hours. Well, unfortunately, my scorecard is overrun, <laughs> and it's a mess, and it's there are, people make fun of me all the time. Uh, John Shambi is a great friend at ESPN. Uh, he, he once, uh, turned my scorecard upside down while I was reading it and said, well, there's no difference, you know, <laughs> uh, it, given your penmanship. And he was absolutely true. It's, it's an, it's a mess, but I, I stack a lot of information in there. And I would say that in a good ball game, uh, I don't use 70% of it, but I, I do it every day. And, and some of it's anecdotal. Some of it might be, a uh, a, a comment I heard from a player or a coach or, another broadcaster that I, that I want on there. I don't think there's any set format necessarily other than it's in my shorthand and my memory is good enough that if I had a conversation with, with someone, I can recall that. Hmm. And, and hopefully in the end, what you're looking for is just a great ball game where, you know, a lot of the minute is not necessary. A lot of that stuff is really uh, prepping for a 10 to one blowout as opposed to three to two, you know, a, a great pitcher's duel with a lot of strikeouts or a big hit in the end. And, and I do the same thing when I call college basketball. Um, it's a different looking scorecard, obviously, than baseball. <clears throat> but in the end, it's it's the same thing. I'm, I'm putting information as much in there as I think I can use in the broadcast and prepare for a game that gets out of hand at the same time. Tell me more about the uh, when you talked about looking down the right field line late in the game, runner at third, does he catch it or not? Um, the way that you've learned to watch the game and kind of watching baseball smarter, um, if I can steal the book title, um, and, and how you've evolved in terms of what you look for and what is important to you as a broadcaster uh, that the layman fan or even other broadcasters wouldn't pay attention to, but that you've found has been something you really like to pay attention to that helps you paint a better picture. Yeah, it's it's a really good question, and I think everyone's a little different with this. But you know, I try. I have tried to become uh, more of a manager in my own head uh, since the time I started when I was, you know, in my in my twenties uh, doing major league baseball. I've started to see the game through. Started seeing the game through the eyes of the manager on both sides. Hmm. So trying to interpret 
what move might be made at a certain point later in the game, which reliever for which hitter, uh, why would he bring a right-hander in to face this particular lefty? Is it because of the action on his four-seamer or a sinker? You know, is he looking for a ground ball here as opposed to a strikeout? So that's why the guy throwing 89s in there instead of the guy throwing 97. You know, pinch hit stuff. Like last night we had a game, a Red Sox game in Philadelphia. The Red Sox lost, but, um, you know, Gabe Kapler, the young manager of the Phillies, used seven relief pitchers, and he used every pinch hitter he had except for his backup catcher, and he wound up using a starting pitcher to pinch hit late in the game. A guy who had just, Nick Pavetta, who had just started against the Red Sox. Well, I mean, he was managing that game like it was the seventh game of the World <laughs> Series. And I, I said that on the air, but there's a reason for that. They're in a race. They're, you know, a couple of games behind Atlanta. They can't afford to lose more ground. So, And they're playing the Red Sox, who happen to be the best team in baseball. So he, he managed that game like he was managing for his life. So you could see that develop early in the game. He started going to pinch hitters in the fourth or fifth inning of that of that contest. And, and that was kind of fun in its way to follow along through his eyes and guess what he might do next. And I, I'd say that's the biggest change for me, that when I first started, it was just, you know, giving you the game as opposed to interpreting what might happen in the game and, and forecasting ahead, which, you know, hopefully we all get better at as the longer we do this. While we're on the subject of Gabe Kapler, um, in terms of analytics nowadays and the way that that has worked its way into baseball broadcast too, uh, how do you handle that in terms of uh, touching on it and, and touching on its importance and picking the stats that work for you um, and also not making sure that you kind of get overrun by just numbers and their meaning, um, but, uh, but, but striking that right balance because obviously it's important. Well, it, it's a tough question because, you know, that assumes that I've got all the answers and I don't. And, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to give the perfect broadcast myself. And I don't think that'll ever happen. Not, not that Vince, since Vince Scully's retired anyway. <laughs> so I, I would say this, that, you know, I do it selectively and I, and I would caution every young announcer to do the same. You know, there's so much available now in terms of sabermetrics and analytics. I'll give you a great example. You know, Mookie Betts, who I think is going to, win the most valuable player award in the American league. Mookie just got to the very top of the ranking in wins above replacement. Uh, the all important war category, which as you know, is huge with sabermetricians. Yep. And they believe that any discussion of the MVP vote begins and pretty much ends with a player's ranking in war. But I don't give the war ranking often at all. It, it takes a long time to explain what war means uh, there's a lot that goes into it. There's an awful lot of meat on that bone. I just don't feel like I, I think we'd be putting people to sleep if we c- talked about it all the time and explained it to our viewers all the time. Um, and I think you have to explain that. So, you know, I mentioned it the other day that he had finally topped Mike Trout in that particular category. I had a brief conversation, I think, with Dennis Eckersley on the air about what it meant. And that was it. I didn't want to belabor that. There are so many numbers that have become that have gained importance in baseball in recent years, like OPS, OPS plus. I think they have a place in baseball, but you can overdo it. You can you can overkill anything, particularly in baseball, where there are already a million numbers to signify a player's value. So I think there are too many of them out there. 
I think it is it is already overdone, and I am really selective about using them. Explain to me a little bit about how you guys map a broadcast to in terms of what you dive into and, and how – I mean, obviously, you're around the same team every day for an entire season, so you and Jerry are going to have a certain degree of knowledge. But, like, what blows my mind when I watch baseball on TV, and it's different on radio because radio, you can go any number of directions. It's just audio. Um, But what blows my mind when I watch television, particularly on national broadcasts, but also on a local level, is it always seems like for every hitter in the lineup and in every possible situation – there is some sort of discussion to be had and some sort of element that goes along with it to represent it. And I always sit there thinking to myself, these must be the world's longest production meetings to cover every possible base. Uh, How do you map out a broadcast in this day and age on television for baseball so that you don't just wind up with innings that are nothing? Well, it's, it's very different nationally and locally. So, you know, when you talk about watching an ESPN telecast or a Fox telecast or TBS, there are production meetings that, and they can last a couple of hours. You're absolutely right. And they go through everything. They'll, they'll, you know, the producer who is, was running the show there will have everybody who's working the show, the talent, everybody in the truck, your graphics coordinator, your director in the same room. So there might be 15, 18 people in that room. And you're going over video clips and stories that you want to use. And you've got your sideline reporter you know, your Buster Olney or your Tim Kirchin sitting in there and, and, and they want to contribute and they've got great nuggets as well. All of that gets discussed, including uh, the meaning, the, the greater meaning to a lot of these numbers that you're talking about. Locally, uh, the production meeting is probably the producer popping into the booth at about five o'clock for five minutes. <laughs> so you don't have that time, it. yeah. Yeah, you, you can't invest that time every day. It's 100, and in our case, it's like 153, 154 broadcasts, those that aren't taken by national. So it's a game every single day. And we'd want to strangle somebody if we had a production meeting for you know, longer than five or 10 minutes. So basically, what you talk about in that case is what you're, what you're going to touch on in the open. You know, are, are we talking about Rick Porcello's performance tonight in the open? Okay, we are. Is there B roll at that? You know, okay, is it Porcello four strikeouts or ground ball or his emotional reaction on the last out or whatever it is? Okay, and then there's a graphic after that, and then I throw it to break and we're done with the open. Wholly different from what's done in a a national broadcast where, yeah, it can – now, I think in a national sense, it can really belabor a ball game. You can talk every at-bat, every player – every pitch to death every pitch seems to be dissected i don't think that's true on the local level you don't do that to your look to your local <laughs> fans because look they already know mookie betts is leading the league and hitting they already know jackie bradley's in a slump you, you don't have to spend you know every second of that at bat uh you know talking about every one of those elements and th- there's a uh, i think there's a a, a predisposition to appreciating the intelligence of your viewer and like in the Red Sox case where we've got a million to a million and a half viewers a night now in this magical season you know they're with us every night so we don't have to do that every evening there's an assumption that they know uh as much pretty much as much as we do what's going on with this ball club what else is different between team and and a network side of things um and and the way that they operate and, and having been on both sides of that spectrum, uh, I guess, which one do you, which one do you enjoy more? 
Well, I, I've enjoyed both of them tremendously. You know, I'm a I'm a Boston kid. I was born in Quincy and raised on the South Shore of Massachusetts. Yeah. And the Red Sox have been in my blood since before I was born, probably. It was, it was my dad's team, my mom's team, my brother's team. I mean, I grew up going to Fenway Park. I, I didn't have a choice in the matter. You know, I was <laughs> I was going to be a Red Sox fan. And, you know, God bless that. Been very lucky in that regard, certainly uh, since the Red Sox started winning championships. Uh, which was not the case when I was a kid, you know, it was, there was a lot of, a lot of baseball tragedy involved, but it was, it's such a, uh, a gift to be a Red Sox fan to grow up in this part of the country. And, you know, the fans are very smart. They're highly intelligent about the game. Um, you really got to work to be a Sox fan, you know, uh, getting in and getting out of Fenway park is, is not easy uh, by anyone's calculation. So I think that, you know, I've got a natural love for the Red Sox, and and high high regard for obviously the chair I hold there, you know, but it's different because I can refer to Mookie Betts as Mookie. I can I can refer to JD Martinez as JD. Everyone's going to know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Who's watching that game in Boston? But I'll call the game very differently if if I'm doing a Red Sox game on national television, as I, as I did many times, even when I was doing the Sox on radio. Uh, I wouldn't shorten that. I wouldn't go with nicknames. I wouldn't assume that. The guy watching in Dallas, Texas, or San Diego, California, had any idea who I was talking about. So you use full names. Uh, it's not as familiar. Um, some of the storylines that have been, you know, trod over many times over the course of a Red Sox season, you can't assume that anybody knows that in other parts of the country. Uh, so you go there with those storylines. You you talk about, you know, what a great uh, uh, bowler Mookie Betts is, as opposed to we don't do that, you know, on a Red Sox telecast because everybody already knows that. Interesting. I never thought of, well, I, n- I never knew Mookie Betts was a bowler, first off. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, Mookie Betts has bowled about 10 perfect games. Dang. Yep, and at one point when his baseball career is over, he will be a professional bowler. He's he's actually done some pro-ams, and he's done pretty well. Uh, he's got, I mean, he's talents off the charts at just about anything, but this this guy is a serious bowler. It's like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me about big moments in your career, too. Um, cause you've done it on, on both, I mean, obviously radio and TV, uh, and, and how you handle anything from, I mean, I, I guess where, where, where Sid, where you were in Sid slid all the way up to the bonds, home runs to, you know, a Red Sox world series to, uh, how you steady yourself in a moment that you know is coming, prepare yourself to handle a moment when you know it's coming, uh, because obviously, you know, there's going to be a lot of ears and eyes on it, um, and just how you how you control your own emotion then in the moment so that everything sounds the way it should. Yeah, you really have to. And and I try and slow it down. I try and slow. It's kind of like, you know, the hitter getting in the batter's box in, in its way with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth inning in the game on the line. Yeah. You know, the, the great hitters say, well, I slow everything down. And, and I remember hearing that. You know, years and years ago, even before I started broadcasting and thinking, you know, I wonder if, if I'd be able to do that in a broadcast sense. Huh. And and the more of those moments you get, the the slower it, it becomes. And that that's true. But, you know, there's, there's part of you that, that naturally wants to frame that moment as, um, you know, do you believe in miracles? Um, but there's only one of those moments. There's only one of those calls from Al Michaels. I mean, and, and at the at the end of the day, what you want to do is get it right. 
more than anything. And that's what your, your, your modus operandi should be. Be accurate, uh, be concise, hopefully be economical, tell the story, be, be, you know, right on the button on it as accurate as you can possibly be. And whatever else comes out after that, that that's terrific. I, I remember I had a call in 2013 on radio where David Ortiz hit a grand slam in the ALCS. David Ortiz, David Ortiz, David Ortiz. That's that's the one, and <laughs> and now I lost my mind on on that call, but but it worked. But, uh, it it worked in that in that situation. I didn't right away give you the score, um, but again, that was a situation where I'm broadcasting to a Red Sox intensive audience, and they know what's going on. I've given the score a million times. They know if David Ortiz is a grand slam. Uh, that the Red Sox have tied the ball game, you know, and so I didn't feel compelled to do it right at that moment. So that was that was what was going on in my head. And and the other thing was, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this guy's done it again. So I repeated his name, like yes, he's done it again to reaffirm that point. And 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 you know that that's just an example of what was kind of ripping through my head at that time. But nothing predetermined. And I think some of the some of the worst work that, that you can do as a broadcaster, play-by-play announcer, is to have something pre-scripted that I'm going to say this when this happens because I, I've seen that done very badly. I've seen announcers really fumble that and let it come out naturally. Get it accurately and then see what happens after that in your own head. And in that case, I remember, you know, hey, David's coming up. You know, the bases are loaded. Um, I, I need to calm down and, and call the moment. I can lose my mind later, and I did <laughs> on that call. Is there a mechanism for doing that? Or is it just you a know, I, I, it's, it's a great question. I, I know in my case, it, it sort of happens naturally. I'm, uh, I know that my focus and concentration doubles in big moments like that. Um, and so... You know, that that's very helpful. I, I that sort of comes naturally for me. And, and at those big moments, you learn to covet um, and, and really bring home. Um, you're just you're just really feeling lucky when you get them. Yeah. You know, when you when you get a, 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 you know, a Barry Bonds home run to break the record or, or if you get David Ortiz to tie a, a league championship series game and or, or a big foul shot, you know, that, that clinches a game uh, in college basketball. You just, you feel very fortunate when you're there. And I think you have to have that sense of, hey, I want to have this moment. Don't run away from it. This is great. It's a great opportunity. But you're not the story. At the same time, you're not the story behind the microphone. The athlete and the moment is the story. And never lose sight of that. Were you happy in hindsight with 755 and 756 and the way that it came out? Uh, I was because um, the time and place uh, required a little bit of restraint and perspective because of who that was hitting that home run, breaking, breaking that record. Sure. Um, so, you know, I don't think my call of, of those home runs will be repeated in San Francisco <laughs> and, and therefore they won't be repeated very much. Um, I, I think that, you know, Dwayne Kuyper's call and John Miller's call, because they were the voices of the Giants. I mean, they lost it on those calls in a way that I didn't feel was appropriate at, at that time and probably never will. I didn't think America was celebrating Barry Bonds' accomplishment, and I don't think ever will. 
I think most baseball fans probably consider the true home run champion to be Henry Aaron and not Barry Bonds, even though they just had a night for Barry in San Francisco. And I thought early in his career, he was a phenomenal player before he started juicing. I want to ask you about two other topics if I can um, quickly, and then I know I got to let you go. Um, But there was one quote I had read in an article um, about you. I think it was when you got the Red Sox job um, in terms of your philosophy um, when you, the TV job, I should say. Um, and it said that you've come in, you, you've come to admire the ability to use silence. Um, how do you best use silence? And, and it's different, I'm sure in terms of radio and television. Um, but where's, I, I feel like the big thing for me, particularly on TV has always been, everybody always says, make sure you lay out here. Um, and then you'll hear somebody else and they'll say, well, you got to actually call the play, but lay out. Um, and it's trying to find the right, like, what is, what, where should the dial be on, on where the silence is and how you're using it and how it's an effective tool? And how have you kind of figured that out? Well, there's a pretty good debate on that, I think, within broadcasting. You know, if someone hit a big home run, someone sinks a three-pointer, um, do you just shut up and let the crowd go? I think that really television a lot of the time. I think. There are plenty of occasions where you are required to explain you saw in that moment or to simply cap the moment effectively. You are a broadcaster. Your job is to call the moment. Um, I also understand that television, I used a lot more than before, allowing the crowd to come in. As, as Scully said, the greatest sound on radio or television is the sound of a crowd that is thrilled about something that happened. And I think he's right about that. So I I think, you know, use your words judiciously in those big moments. Nothing is better than the sound of the crowd. Absolutely right about that. The final thing I wanted to ask you about was, and actually you mentioned it early on in our conversation here, uh, when you went to college and Mike Tirico said, uh, this guy sounds like he's 40. uh, (laughs) How long have you sounded uh, the way that you sound? And how have you worked uh, in terms of honing your your voice and your instrument and and, uh, that side of things? Well, there, there, there might be a couple of uh, souls still left from my very early days on, on radio in Keene, New Hampshire, when I was 18 <laughs> years old, who would, who would debate whether I would ever sound uh, more than uh, 17 or 18 years old uh, and probably deeply regret ever hearing the sound of my voice at, uh, at midnight. But, I, you know, I, I really did work at it. I really worked on, on um, you know, drawing my pipes down and and carving away some of my New England accent, which was pretty serious when I was a kid. And even when I went to Syracuse, and I can remember a couple of professors telling me, you know, David, the letter R actually does exist in the English language. You know, try using that once in a while. So, you know, I I worked at that a lot because I did want to work nationally, but I never wanted to steal too much away from my New England roots. So there was an awful lot of concentration, an awful lot of work on that. I I felt like my voice probably shifted because I worked a lot. When I really started working a great deal uh, in my middle 20s, um, I felt like my voice changed. And, you know, the voice experts that I've met have said, your voice is a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it'll get. You can overuse it as you can every muscle, but it's going to build in strength. And I found that to be true. Um, You know, and for about a decade, I did about 220 games a year. Uh, between ESPN and the Red Sox, and I worked probably more play-by-play than anybody in the business for a long, long time. 
I'm, I'm trying to cut back a little bit at this point, but um, I, I like where my voice got, you know, by my early 30s in particular, um, and I felt it was a real asset to me. Did you ever do anything in terms of, I, I don't know, do you do like breathing exercises or just consciously be aware of how you're using the mechanism, or is it just well, over you, time? You make, you, it, it's a great question about breathing because a lot of young announcers didn't learn how to breathe. Where I learned how to do it, was doing commercials um, when I first started out and, you know, I was getting better and better at it. So I did a lot of it. Even before I went on the air, I might cut like 10 or 15 commercials and I really learned how to breathe and I learned how to, you know, I could read a whole paragraph in one breath cause I had to, you know, the, the, the spot was 30 seconds. I had to get it all in and it was 45 seconds of copy. So that really helped me in my early days uh, working in radio as a disc jockey, uh, you know, before I ever met Mike Tirico and he thought I sounded 40 years old. Well, and that goes down to being versatile, too, and doing a lot of different things and how that all applies to, to ultimately where you want to go at the end of the day, too, which is, uh, I think, a, a, an interesting point in terms of being able to read copy for ads and being able to be a disc jockey and how that all comes down to doing sports. So. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no question about it. And, and that's where you put in the work. You know, you make the mistakes and you hope that uh, not too many people in Keene, New Hampshire, hear them. <laughs> and uh, and you get better as you go and and you listen to yourself a lot. To this day, I air check myself a couple of times a week uh, on, on Red Sox television. What do you, to, what do you listen to for? Find out ways. I, I listen for particular plays and whether or not we we did a good job explaining what might have occurred there on that obstruction call or that ball transfer that was dropped or the fair foul boundary call. Did we do a good job? Were we clear? Were we efficient? And how the entire broadcast team worked, you know, booth and truck at the same time. And, and that's what I I don't watch back an entire game, but I'll look at particular parts and, and usually more often than not come away going, yeah, it was better than we thought. Dave, if people want to track you down on social media or the like, or or follow the Red Sox uh, and and your work, uh, what's the best way to do that? Uh, that's a great, uh, great question because there is no way I'm not on social media. Uh, don't do any of that stuff. Somebody asked me, well, why aren't you, why don't you tweet? And I say, well, my microphone, I open up a microphone every night and a yep. million people hear the sound of my voice. That's all I need. I don't need to tell people where I went for breakfast today. <laughs> um, so I think it's, you know, I, I think we all get carried away too much with that. So I realize it has its place and, and whatnot, but Hey, just tune in the game. If you want to write me a note, if you want to, Reach out on on email, uh, DaveOB at AOL.com is my email. You know, if there's anything I can do for you, then happy to do that. But uh, I consider that microphone Twitter for me. All right, that's Dave O'Brien joining us here on PXPCast. Uh, they are in Chicago tonight. Socks and socks. Uh, the Red Sox and White Sox at 810 tonight. We caught Dave on an off day, though, so I appreciate I, I think he actually did this on the way back to his house from the airport. So many thanks to Dave for taking time out of the very few off days he gets in a season uh, to talk about the business and the craft and the art with us here on the pod. As you heard as well, he does not have social media. There is a Twitter handle attached to a Dave O'Brien uh, that looks like him on Twitter, uh, but he doesn't have social media, and that one hasn't tweeted since 2011. So uh, if you want to reach out to Dave, he gave you the best ways to do it. 
So uh, hit him up that way as well. Uh, next week, really good conversation with Ted Robinson, the voice of the San Francisco 49ers. And we will talk football, but we're going to talk a lot about other stuff too. A uh, ton about tennis broadcasting. Um, and I don't want to like deter you from listening by saying that right off the bat. It's really interesting because it's a conversation we haven't had uh, a lot on this podcast because, uh, you know, we haven't really had why. Um, but really interesting approach to uh, broadcasting sports that you did not know. And Ted obviously has become very well acclimated with tennis, but not when he started. And we'll kind of get into all of that. Uh, we'll talk about his experience in the Olympics, certainly the 49ers, and uh, we will talk about a quarterback uh, named Colin Kaepernick as well. So a lot of really interesting ground to cover next week with Ted Robinson uh, on PXPCast. Until then, so long. I will talk to you uh, from South Bend next week. Cardinals heading to Notre Dame Stadium. It's going to be a blast, man. I am so looking forward to it. Uh, anyway, we're out of time. Hit it, Marshmallow. We'll see you.